Well, we begin our series uh, officially today, starting in um, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, as I said last week, we are looking at a, a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in a way that uh, challenged them on spiritual issues uh, because his ultimate goal was for Christ to be glorified in the bride. Um, that that the Christ being the groom and, and the church being the bride would be a bride presented as holy and blameless in the end. And therefore, as uh, a church, we understand that sin needs to be addressed, sin needs to be taken care of, and uh, so that we might live holy lives. Um, I, I do have a confession to make this morning. I had the privilege of uh, of preaching uh, this morning at Cross Point Baptist Church for my friend Keith Blessing, and uh, and and I preached the same sermon, and I told them they were my target audience, and they all gave me the thumbs up. So I was able to feel like I could come and preach this again to you tonight. So um, I'm excited to dive into this work, and I, I want us to consider uh, this this uh, afternoon. Uh, really, really the first couple verses, I had uh, Jeremy read one through nine because that's kind of the context of this. But what we're looking at is Paul's introduction to the letter. And as always, Paul does a thoroughly theological job of giving us a lot of meat to chew on in his uh, introductions. And as a good leader and, and um, minister of the gospel and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ... Paul not only introduces himself well and addresses uh, the audience to which he is speaking, but he also starts the letter off in thanksgiving. And he's praising the Lord for the way in which Christ worked in the church. So really, I would summarize the first nine verses in verse four, where Paul writes this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. The, the concept of grace is that grace is a gift. And so really what Paul is saying is that these are gifts that the Lord has bestowed upon the church in which he is celebrating. He is thankful for the way in which the Lord has, um, has saved and transformed these lost uh, Gentile and Jews and brought them to Christ. And so no matter what difficulties they are facing, Paul as a good leader is still celebrating the grace of God in their life. And I'll be honest with you, from the, uh, from the outset, I was challenged by that because in leadership positions, whether it be a pastor of a church, whether it be a parent in the home, whether it be an employee or employer, whatever leadership roles you, you take, we oftentimes overlook the need for encouragement and the importance of encouragement. And here Paul starts off encouraging them, thanking the Lord for what he's done in them. And I think that that's something that we should bring to great attention this afternoon. That, that, the, that Paul was recognizing and seeing beyond the great and grave sin in the church to say, hey, let's, let's take a step back and let's, uh, let's start off this letter in a positive note by, by bringing praise and thanksgiving to God for what he's done in the Corinthians. And that had to be encouraging to them because they didn't know what was coming next. 
And, and so they were prepared, I think, for really him jumping into some of the issues in verse 10. And so what I want us to look at probably this week and next is some of the gifts that uh, Paul highlights that he's thankful for in the church. So I've entitled the sermon, Christ's Work in the Church, because what Paul does is he highlights what I see as five, possibly even six gifts that the Lord has blessed the church with. And that would, church obviously would be us as believers, as the gathered church of Christ. And so we're going to look at some of those gifts today. And the first gift this uh, afternoon is the gift of divine calling, divine calling. Um, if you'll notice in verses one, the Paul says that he is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and to our brother Sosthenes. In verse 2, he relegates or relates the church to being the church of God that is in Corinth to the sanctified in Christ Jesus who are called to be saints together with all those in every place that call upon the name of the Lord. If you go down to uh, verse 9, he says, and he states, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I wanted to, to kind of camp on this for a, more, uh, a moment and think about what does it mean to be called? What is our calling in Christ Jesus? Well, uh, to, to begin, we have to understand the language of the New Testament. In the Greek, you typically have a definition or definitions that sometimes you have to uh, connect to the context. So, for example, the, the Greek word kaleo, to call, has a few different definitions. It, it means, first of all, to name something. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, the Bible tells us that the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I was able to, 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 to name four of my five children, and, and therefore what I named them, we call them. That is the same idea, the kaleo, to call someone something or to name them that way. The second uh, definition is to invite someone or summon someone to yourself. So in other words, you might uh, think of the story in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, where Jesus and his, uh, or Jesus' mother and brothers go and visit him in ministry. And the Bible says in Mark 3, verses uh, 31, that they sent for him because he was away from them. They, they sent for him and called him. And in that context, that doesn't mean that they were naming him something. It means that they were summoning him. Hey, Jesus, come over here to where we are so that we can see you. And of course, we know that that uh, scenario with his mother and brothers didn't go very well because they thought Jesus was a lunatic and they thought he was crazy. But the overwhelming usage of kaleo in the New Testament is oftentimes, most often, uh, written in the passive voice, meaning that God, a divine passive, God is calling someone in regards to accomplishing some spiritual work in them. So it's a spiritual call to something by God himself. And Paul uses it in the context of his apostleship. Paul says, God and his will called me to be an apostle. Therefore, God wasn't just inviting him 
to be an apostle. God wasn't just naming him to be an apostle. God literally made Paul an apostle. That was his calling by the will of God. You know, and you're familiar with Romans uh, chapter 8. If you can flip over a couple pages to the left, you're familiar with this passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, the interpretation of verse 30 there isn't that God literally just names us Christians or not that he's merely just inviting us to to Christianity because in that context, it is literally the spiritual work that God has already accomplished in us based on his electing work. That's why we are called and justified and glorified. It is a, uh, a work in which that is built upon the foundation of his election uh, of his people. So Romans chapter 8 verse 30 is an example. First Peter chapter 2, the Bible tells us that we are called out of darkness into marvelous light. What does that mean? We're invited to transfer ourselves from the darkness of sin into the marvelous light of the Lord? Or does it mean that God savingly and and effectively changes us so that we literally are transformed by Him from the darkness to the marvelous light that He provides? And I would say it was the latter. Because the divine call of God is an act written in the passive voice. If you're not a Greek uh, a student, then the passive voice means that something outside of us is acting upon us. Therefore, God is acting upon us by calling us to salvation. Another way that we read this in the Bible is not with the word kaleo, but it's in John 6.44, which says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right? Draws can literally be interposed with calls. It is not necessarily just an invitation to come to the Lord, but it is literally a work of salvation in us, drawing us to Himself, opening the eyes of the blind, granting us the faith to believe. Well, how do we know that? Because in that passage, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, who is God raising up on the last day? He's not raising up everybody. He's raising up those who are saved. And therefore, those who are saved are those who God has drawn to himself in a salvation or salvific work. So, when we understand the divine calling of God, then we have to continue to research the the words um, that I think Paul is, is trying to communicate here. Because Paul is speaking about the divine call of God. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. The whole process by which Paul became an apostle, starting with his salvation, was a supernatural work of God to be divinely called out of darkness into marvelous light, whereby God grants him faith to believe by his grace. Similarly, in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, God is faithful 
by whom you, Corinthians, you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is, or, uh, Paul is already acknowledging their uh, belonging to the church. They're belonging to and acknowledging the spiritual work by which they have experienced in their lives. Therefore, they are not just being invited into the fellowship of His Son. They have been supernaturally transformed and changed by the divine calling upon our lives. Again, we see that in verse 3, that they are called to be saints together with Christ. So, in theological terms, the divine call, like I said, is a transformative work by which God sovereignly and graciously transforms our heart. But what we've come to understand about the Bible when you look upon it in totality is that there are two aspects of our divine call. There are two aspects. Because we would often say, well, what about people that hear the gospel and don't respond? Are they called? Well, you could answer that question with yes. Because there are passages in the Bible in which the gospel being proclaimed is is one aspect of the divine call. It is the external call. It is the proclamation of the gospel. So you might say the divine call is both the external proclamation of the gospel and the inward transformative work of God upon the lives of his people. The external gospel proclamation, that is the call of God to to send the, the gospel to all people across all lands and all nations. It's the invitation part of the call. For example, in, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus calling to the crowd and to his disciples said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, that is the gospel proclamation. That is the invitation to a mass group of people to receive Christ. We would say that as a gospel proclamation or the external call of God to receive and come to Him. Luke chapter 5. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There you see Kaleo once again. Again, the, the, the bold and public proclamation of the gospel. And then the most famous one we know of is Acts chapter 2, where Peter stands up and says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This external public call goes out across the lands, but we know that not everyone accepts that call. So I would say it this way. The external call of God, this public proclamation of the gospel, is communicated through the preaching of the gospel alone. And it is sent out on a global scale by faithful believers in Christ. Therefore, no follower, and listen to me closely, no follower of Jesus Christ can ever come to Jesus savingly without experiencing that external call of God that external hearing of the proclamation of the gospel. What that means is you can't be sitting in the woods, men, in your deer stand, and come to know Christ by looking at the beauty of creation. You can't look through a telescope and and see all that God has made and savingly come to know Christ because you have not heard the external proclamation of the gospel. 
You may understand a a reality of the existence of God by looking at all that's been made, but by no means can you look at Pluto and Venus and go, I understand that Jesus Christ died for my sins. It's impossible. Because in the divine call of His people, there must be an external proclamation of the revealed, inerrant, living Word of God. And sadly, we know in our experience in Christianity and faith that not everyone receives that external call. Not everyone accepts Christ. They reject that. They hear the message of the gospel and they turn away. They don't need Jesus. They suppress the truth, the Bible says, in unrighteousness. And that challenges us as as believers in Jesus to know and understand the reality that the gospel message must go forth. I appreciate the Southern Baptist Convention that meets this week in Anaheim, California. Every convention, every single year, they have an event before uh, the convention is held, and it's called the crossover event. Every week before the Southern Baptist Convention, seminary students flock to wherever city in that, uh, that the convention's being held, and they go out and blank, blanket the city with gospel messages, with gospel conversations, reaching people with the gospel. Because they understand. It's a, it's, a, it's a reminder to all of us the need for the public proclamation of the gospel as God has ordained the divine call to work. But in that divine call, in that external call, is the special internal call of God upon our lives by which we are truly transformed and changed. And Paul acknowledges that. I think I've made my point there in 1 Corinthians 1 through 9. Calling these Corinthians believers in Jesus Christ because they have been called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the divine call then is God acting so upon us by which we might see and understand Him. We might see and understand our own sin that we would understand and know Jesus Christ and therefore our eyes would be opened, our ears would would be uh, unobstructed and therefore we would hear and believe and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. A great example of that outside of the Apostle Paul himself I think can be found in Acts chapter 16. And the story of Lydia. Be reminded that Lydia was a uh, seller of purple goods, as the Bible says. Most likely um, some form of clothing and material. Some, some way in which she would uh, use this. Um, she would go and sell these items in different marketplaces. And she was from Thyatira, but she had made her way to, to Philippi. And there in Philippi, she encounters the Apostle Paul. Well, guess what? The Apostle Paul wasn't supposed to be in Philippi. He was heading to Asia, and the Holy Spirit redirected his whole, changed his whole course of direction. And there he ends up in the the heart of Macedonia in Philippi. And he decides to go down to the river where people pray. And in Acts chapter 16, it says that we, meaning Luke and Acts, or excuse me, Luke and Paul, sit down and they speak to the women who had gathered there at the river. And one of the women heard us, Luke writes, who was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper, worshiper of God. And the Lord 
opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. And she was baptized, her and her household. There you have both experiences, both sides of the coin. You have Paul standing there. I don't think Paul is exchanging recipes with Lydia. I don't think he's asking her about her purple goods. I think he's explaining to her the gospel. He's proclaiming the truth of the gospel there to her. And it's so much so that the Lord opens her heart. The, the Bible there literally means that, he, that all the obstructions and all the obstacles of, of Lydia's sin and, and the darkness in which she lived were removed so that the, the internal divine call upon her life would literally open her heart and change her life. Faith was granted, transformed, uh, a heart was transformed, and salvation flooded upon her life. And so we see this external and internal work of God in their lives. The Apostle Paul is no different, and church, neither are we. Each one of us, each one of us had a different experience in the relationship of our uh, a transformative faith in Christ. We were at different places. We were at different locations. The Lord used many different people that were uh, different for, for one person from another. Maybe it was your grandfather. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a neighbor. And yet all of us experienced the same external message, the gospel and internal transformation from God Himself. All of us have experienced the same thing if you follow Jesus Christ and trust in Him. And so this is the gift. This is the gift in which Paul is acknowledging his thankfulness, in which he is celebrating in the lives of these believers. Celebrating the divine call of God. Celebrating the the hope that they have in Christ. And this all sets uh, the, the, the letter up for the ways in which He will then challenge them in the sinfulness that they've fallen into. Because He's telling them, you're called together to be brothers and sisters in Christ. You're being sanctified in Christ. You've experienced the divine call from God. So then, why are you living this way? Why are you allowing sin to live among you? This is the the logical argument that Paul is going to enter into. And so church, I hope that you will understand and, under, and, and appreciate and celebrate as the Apostle Paul celebrates that your calling to salvation is, is, an, is a supernatural act by God by which He allowed you to hear the gospel. Do you realize that there are thousands of people groups still in our world today that don't even have access to the gospel message? That they still don't have a translation of the Bible in their language? And you... And I have heard a clear understanding of of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our language. We're like, oh, but Nathan, we live in an English-speaking world. Of course the gospel is going to be in an English-speaking world. Except for the fact that God providentially could have put you in one of those people groups. You could have been raised in that area of the world that has not yet heard the gospel. God, the Bible says in in Acts chapter 17, He ordains and hymns us in to appointed places and times. Therefore, you could have been born in those places that have never heard the gospel. But He chose you to be born in an English-speaking place where the gospel is prevalent and fluent and easy to hear so that we would cherish that external call. 
And that we would cherish and celebrate the transforming work of Christ in our lives. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. Flip forward to the right to Ephesians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite passages. If I was going to get a a back tattoo, I'd probably get all of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, just tattooed across my back. But I'm not going to do that. And you, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we've all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by children or by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Church, this describes us before the divine calling of God. This state in which we live in perpetual sin and deadness, completely separated from God. We're not born in, and, and we don't exist in this world in, 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 in a way in which we're, uh, we're, we're morally good. We despise God. We are by nature children of wrath, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. The Bible says that we're constantly hostile to God, that we're enemies of God. And yet the greatest verse in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did He do that? Why did He do that? It wasn't because you and I are great people. Or because we're going to do great things in the, in the world. Look at verse 7. So that, or because, in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's for His glory. It's for His honor. The divine calling of God upon our lives is to show His power and His majesty, not anything that we've done. So we look at the divine calling of God. Secondly, we see that this gift of divine calling also leads to the gift of the church. The gift of the church. You'll be reminded that as Ephesians chapter 5 says, we looked at this last week, that the God is in the business of presenting a, a blameless and pure bride to his, his um to his son. And we, the church, will be that bride. Ephesians chapter 5. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I want you to remember, ladies, if you're married in here today, you remember your wedding day, the preparation that went into that day, the excitement and the anxiety, the ways in which you, um, your heart was beating fast as you approached the doors that were going to fling open or, or you, you made your way around the corner so you could see your groom for the first time. Or maybe it was that, that moment around, uh, away from everyone else where the groom would, would walk behind you and you would turn around and you would see each other. That excitement is just a shadow 
of an eternal event in which Christ will one day unite with His bride, pure and blameless, holy and without spot. And you and I are a part of that. That's not some some just ideological thing. That is a true, living, existing idea and truth in which we belong, that we are a part of that church. And there will be this glorious moment in which the church will unite again with Christ and we will worship Him and we will be holy and we will be blameless. And so as we think about the gift of the church, we first have to acknowledge that the gift of the church is a gift to the Son from the Father. Remember that Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, who are the sheep? We are the sheep. God's people, the church. Only the sheep that hear His voice and know Him and follow Him belong to the church. Therefore, the sheep is not the world. The sheep are those who follow Christ. And he says, my father who has given them to me, there's the gift, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So because God has divinely called you, we see and we will see in the future next week that God will keep you. And because he called you and he will keep you in between those two places, he will sanctify you, he will make you holy. Why? Because he has blessed you with one of the greatest gifts, one of the greatest gifts that you can receive on this earth, outside of the blessings of spiritual salvation and forgiveness, the gift of the church. Because the church is just not a gift to the Son, it's a gift to us, to each other. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 2 acknowledging to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both, the, both their Lord and ours. So the divine calling of God is not just into the blessing of salvation, the union with Christ, but also the union with each other. Therefore, in connection with our sanctification between the saving and the keeping, God is sanctifying us in such a way that we need each other. Our sanctification is dependent upon a gathered church. The church, the word church there means ecclesia, which is the gathered people of God, which means that the church exists without an isolation. The church gathers together, it benefits from the gathering in the same way that Adam and Eve gathered together with the Lord in the garden. Our gathering with Christ as the sinner is spiritual food for our souls. But sadly, many people don't see the need to gather in spiritual community. They see the church as a physical entity, not a spiritual one. It's a place that you go that might generate you some physical friendships, it might generate you some uh, business leads, it might generate you some social credit, but it's not a spiritual blessing to people. Matter of fact, they look at the church in the same way they look at the Bible. 
The Bible is just words that we're supposed to read. And if we read those words, then we're doing God a, a, a great service. We're honoring Him in some way. Instead of looking at the Bible itself as the living, active Word of God, which nourishes our soul, that is literally the, the food in which our souls uh, yearn and crave. So church, we need to understand that our divine calling to salvation in Christ is, a, is, is connected to a divine calling in which we are brought together, united with Christ, and with each other as brothers and sisters. You're familiar with this passage in Hebrews chapter 10? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice in that passage that Paul jumps into not your... Not just your gathering as the church, but your responsibility in that gathering. That your responsibility in the gathering is not to just be a bump on the log, not to be a warm body in the seat, but to be an active uh, encourager, one who is aggravating. That word stir up means to literally aggravate people to love and good works. You know well as I do as a, as a parent, You can watch your kids aggravate one another. Push the right buttons, right? Well, we're here called in the church to aggravate one another to love and good works. Because that's the role and the responsibility of the church. He goes even further in in acknowledging that the opposite of that would be to neglect to meet together. Oftentimes we read this passage and we see, see, you need to come to church because you're not supposed to neglect meeting together. I would disagree with that. Meeting together is the foundation. Stirring each other up to love and good works and encouraging one another until Christ returns. That's the action in that statement. How are we loving each other? How are we serving each other? We can't live in this world as believers alone. We cannot isolate ourselves away from other believers because if so, our spiritual growth will be sacrificed. Secondly, he says there's no boundary. That we're called to be saints together with all those in every place that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He's their Lord and He's our Lord. This week I was able to speak and pray with a brother, John Scudder, in in India. By God's mercy and grace, I'm going to get to travel to India this year in October to begin a training uh, uh, season with pastors there in India through Catalyst Mission. And I had the opportunity this week to meet John Scudder, our, our, our man on the ground there a faithful believer, a faithful church planner. And instantly, and within a matter of moments, even though our cultures are different, even though the, 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 the diet and the palate in which we enjoy in our lives of food and, and drink are different, immediately we had so much more in common than we did apart. Because he's a brother in Christ. 
because there's no boundary. The church is both local here, like Redemption Community Church, and universal. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians of these things. Why? Because he's immediately about to deal with divisions and factions in the church. Issues in which we allow culture to divide us. The color of our skin or the socioeconomic level, we allow those things to divide us. Whether you're homeschool or public school or whether you play sports or you read books, we always find a way in human nature to divide each other. And Jesus says, but in the church, we have to get rid of division and be united because you're united in him. So that you can literally travel 7,000 miles to India where the predominant religion in this area is Hindu. And you can meet a brother in Christ and have so much more in common than you don't, than you have apart. And this is Paul's message to them. And it's his message to us. That we would not allow the church to be divided. That we would cherish and desire to be a part of a, a faithful church that loves one another and serves one another. That we would be willing to, uh, to step outside of our comfort zones in such a way to be hospitable and to serve people. That we wouldn't just sit around and, and gather each week to get something from the Lord like consumers. Yeah, we want to be fed and we want to worship and we want to praise, but what are we giving to other people and how are we aiding in their sanctification and growth in Christ? How are we making them more holy? You know, my job at uh, Coleman and Owen Construction, there are so many tasks that we have to do every day to accomplish this long-term goal that we can't do by ourselves. We could strive to do those things by ourselves, but there's always something too heavy to pick up. Or it would take too much time to, to do every trade that, it, that needs to happen for this project to be done. So we depend on other people. We depend upon this person's gifts and this person's gifts and this person's gifts so that one goal can be accomplished. And church, that's what we need to be striving for as believers. How can I serve my brother and sister in Christ? How can I encourage them, stirring them up to love and good works? How can I pray with them? How can I study God's Word together? How can I call them to repentance? These are our responsibilities as we connect spiritually as one, to one another as the body of Jesus Christ. So we have the gift, the gift of divine calling, the gift of the church. We'll look at it a couple more next week. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace and helping us understand the truth of God's Word in such a way that we would be overwhelmed with your greatness, overwhelmed with the power that Christ has um, demonstrated in saving us, calling us to be united in Christ together. 
Father, we're thankful for this church, and we're thankful for the universal church, and we, we pray that this church would, uh, we would cherish being united together, that it wouldn't be a hindrance or a nuisance to us, but instead, God, we would be overjoyed with living life together, bearing each other's burdens, caring for our souls. God, help us. Pastor Adam read earlier that for us to have the mind of Christ, we have to die to ourselves. Think of others more important than our own needs. And so God, I pray that you would help us. May we celebrate what you've done and may we celebrate the union that you have brought us into. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.